Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It is brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Saturday, May uh, 20th, uh, 2023, and uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Let's thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Later on in our program, we'll, bring, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire reports. We'll have dispatches on the dismissal of the head of the Sudanese Armed Forces, General Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, of his adversary uh, on the battlefield, uh, who is over the rapid support forces, that's Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, from, uh, he was expelled from the Sovereign Council. The East African state of Tanzania has requested another 25,000 school deaths for students across uh, that uh, country. The state of Zambia is raising awareness about the prevalence of gender-based violence, and the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is digitizing its database to resolve the continuing problems of public health across the African continent. In the second hour, we listened to a press conference on the burgeoning humanitarian crisis inside uh, of uh, the city of, uh, inside the uh, nation of uh, Khartoum, inside the nation of the Republic of Sudan in the capital of Khartoum. Finally, we continue our commemoration of the 60th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity, the predecessor to the African Union. We will review and address delivered by Malcolm X, uh, El Hajj, and Alex Shabazz in New York City right after his trip to Africa and the Middle East. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a break with the Bevan uh, Marie Marie Negro Success, the band from the classic uh, Pan-African music from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, let's listen in. Famille, Mon salaire, mon amour, quel 
the chairman of the Sovereign Council issued a constituent constitutional decree dismissing Lieutenant General Mohammed Hamdan Dergala from his position as vice chairman of the Transitional Sovereign Council. The decision uh, comes after a month of armed clashes between the Sudanese Army and the Rapid Support Forces, stemming from the disagreements regarding the fate of the paramilitary group. Earlier uh, this month, uh, Yasir al-Atta, a Sudanese general, who is a member of the Sovereign Council, had mentioned that the removal of Hamati would be carried out following a meeting of the Collegial Presidency. Simultaneously, Al-Bahan issued another decree appointing Malik Agar as the new deputy uh, chairman of the Sovereign Council effective immediately. The Blue Nile government, uh, led by the SPLMN faction headed by Agar, had previously explored the Sudanese army in its conflict against the RSF. In the aftermath of the October 25, 2021 coup, Agar maintained his alliance with the Sudanese army while criticizing the forces for freedom and change. In response to this position, a faction led by his former deputy, Yasir Aman, split uh, from uh, the group. In another news on Sudan, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Sudan has condemned the visit of the political advisor to the commander of the Rapid Support Forces to the capital of South Sudan. This took place uh, just this last past Wednesday. On Thursday, the following day, the foreign ministry stated that it had officially lodged a protest note uh, with the South Sudanese government regarding their permission for Yusuf Izat, the RSF commander's advisor, to visit uh, Juba. The ministry also highlighted its objections to the advisor's subsequent press conference, which took place in the presence of senior officials from the South Sudanese government. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs further, quote, expressed great surprise at the actions of the government of South Sudan, unquote, stressed the statement. On Wednesday, the South Sudanese presidency said that Izat briefed President Salva Kiir about their views on the armed conflict with the Sudanese army. In a press conference held with the acting minister of foreign affairs, Dung Dung Dung, uh, the RSF envoy voiced their support for the intergovernmental authority on development to lead the peace process. RSF acknowledged that Juba is an ideal place uh, for the Sudanese peace talks. He further said, immediately after the eruption of hostilities in the Republic of Sudan on April 15th, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development leaders tasked South Sudanese leader Salva Kiir to visit Khartoum and to lead a mediation to end the fighting and settle the conflict. Kiir and other African leaders, however, had, no, had to cancel their visit due to the security situation in Khartoum and proposed to host talks in Juba. Washington and Riyadh proposed to mediate the process and choose the Red Sea town Jeddah as the venue of the talks. On May 11th, the two warring parties signed a declaration of commitment to protect the civilians in Sudan. Nowadays, they discuss a humanitarian succession of uh, hostilities. And uh, in the East African state of Tanzania, the government said uh, just two days ago, it intended to establish 25,773 desks for reporting occurrences of violence as against children in all public schools. Dorothy 
Wajema, the Minister for Community Development, Gender, Women, and Special Groups, told Parliament in the National Capital of Dodoma that the establishment uh, of the desk uh, for addressing violence against children in public schools started in July of 2022. Presenting her ministries, the budget estimates that 2023 and 2024 financial year, Wajema uh, said uh, from July of 2022 to April of 2023, 1,128 sets were created in public primary schools and 457 in public secondary schools. She said uh, 12 regions were leading in the creation of the desk for addressing violence against children, adding that the desk uh, will also be used for the protection of vulnerable children. Guanyima um, named the regions Dar es Salaam, Shenyanga, Mwanza, Iringa, Tanga, Dodoma, Maniara, Yeta, Rukwa, Arusha, Coast, and Morgol. She said her ministry will continue collaborating with other institutions in the creation of the desk intended to save children from violent acts. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In the southern African state of Zambia, uh, the country saw an increase in gender-based violence cases during the first quarter of 2023 compared to the same period last year, according to data released uh, by the Tanzanian police uh, just two days ago. According to the data released by the Victim Support Unit of the Tanzanian police, the country recorded 10,797 gender-based violence cases during the first quarter compared to 6,915 cases during the same period of last year. Danny Mwale, the Deputy Public Relations Officer of the Police, said of the, out of the 10,797 cases, 6,944 were criminal cases while the rest were non-criminal. The police uh, also recorded 35 gender-based violence-related murder cases during the same period, out of which 10 victims were men, 15 were women, and 6 and 4 were boys and girls, respectively. The police spokesperson added that Lusaka, the country's capital, recorded the highest number of gender-based violence-related cases with 1,413 cases, while Northern Province recorded the lowest with 162 cases. Also, 701 cases of child defilement were recorded during the same period, with 697 cases being girls and four uh, being boys. And finally, uh, in regard uh, to developments uh, with the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, just two days ago, uh, said it recently launched Digital Transformation Strategy. It is set to revolutionize and strengthen public health systems on the African continent. With the increasing penetration of mobile phones and other digital technologies in Africa, there's a unique opportunity to harness this potential and improve health outcomes for all Africans, the African CDC said in a statement issued on Thursday, and the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is an affiliate of uh, the African Union based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. It recognized the power of technology in improving healthcare outcomes, 
especially in low- and middle-income countries. The digital transformation strategy launched in March in Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, has two main strategic objectives, making Africa's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention an informative, savvy institution and positioning Africa's CDC to support African Union member states in strengthening their public health systems. The digital transformation strategy to represent a critical milestone in our mission to improve public health in Africa, the statement quoted Ahmed Agwell Wuma, Deputy Director General of the Africa CDC, as saying. Uma uh, said, uh, as Africa CDC spearheads an implementation of new, new Africa public health order, the AU specialized healthcare agency is committed to leveraging technology to strengthen its response to health, public health emergencies and to build resilient health systems across the continent. To achieve its aspiration, the Africa CDC has developed 10 flagship initiatives ranging from connecting all of Africa health facilities, promoting homegrown health tech, innovation, and including more women in the fast-growing digital health sector. Africa's growing digital native population combined with the increased penetration of digital technology and literacy presents a historic opportunity to rethink how healthcare interventions are designed and delivered. And that was according to Jean Gilbert Insane. Gimana, uh, Africa's CDC's Chief Digital Advisor. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. And if you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you would like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, May 20th, 2023, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That is at Blog Talk Radio dot com forward slash pan african journal that's blog talk radio dot com forward slash pan african journal we'll take a break uh, we'll be back uh, with more of the pan african journal for this week
Welcome back, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, that was the music of the Jimi Hendrix Experience, uh, the track entitled One Rainy Wish uh, from their second album entitled Axis uh, Bola's Love. In Sudan, as we talked about in the Pan-African Newswire segment, uh, has, uh, of course, been engulfed uh, for the last five weeks in conflict uh, between two of the two of the military structures inside the country, the Sudanese Armed Forces, headed uh, by uh, General Abdel Fattah al-Bahan, uh, in, of course, conflict uh, with the general of the Rapid Support Forces, Mohammed Hamdan Delgallo, better known as Samati. And uh, we're going to listen to a United Nations press conference that took place this week. Uh, it discussed the humanitarian crisis that, of course, has worsened in the Republic of Sudan as a result of the fighting over the last five weeks between these two military structures, which has jeopardized the health, security, and well-being of, of course, uh, tens of millions of people inside uh, this oil-rich state, as well as uh, causing the deaths of uh, documented deaths of more than 600 people and, of course, the displacement of hundreds of thousands of others. Let's listen to this report of a press conference uh, just uh, yesterday at the United Nations. ...in funding to support UNITED for the next five years. But when you see the return on investment on only one innovation like this one, return on investment of $7 billion dollars, you understand the importance on investing in early introduction of new tools in low and middle-income countries, and that's part of the work of UNITED. Thank you. Thank you, Hervé. Uh, do we have questions for Hervé? No, I don't see any, so uh, thank you very much for sharing that promising update, and uh, bon voyage. We'll now turn to Jens of Ocha, who will speak to the high-level pledging event for the humanitarian response in Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia. Jens, over to you. Uh, thank you, Rolando. Good morning, everyone, and happy Friday. Um, we have an event on next Wednesday, uh, which is webcast here, and I thought I, I wanted to flag it because you may be interested. Uh, it's on Wednesday. It, it starts at 3 p.m., and it's webcast on your web TV. It is the high-level pledging event for the humanitarian response in Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia. And we are doing this uh, in collaboration uh, with the following countries, Italy, Qatar, the United Kingdom, and the United States um, of America. And of course, with in collaboration and participation of Ethiopia, Kenya, and uh, Somalia. Just a couple of words of what the background is. As, as you know, famine was not declared in this region, but that does not mean that tragedy was averted. There are more than 43 million people who need assistance across these three countries. And while we have seen um, improved rains after unprecedented drought, now those rains have triggered massive flooding. Uh, so there's almost one million people who are now affected by, by these flooding. So in summary, Horn of Africa is really the epicenter of uh, the climate crisis. Uh, people need help, and that's why we are trying to, to raise uh, funding here. So next Wednesday, 3 p.m., UN Web TV. Thank you. Thank you, Jens. Questions for Jens? No, I don't see any, so thanks, and good luck to you over the coming days. 
We now turn to our colleague from the World Food Program in Bangkok, uh, Ms. Anthea Webb, who is WFP's Deputy Regional Director for Asia and the Pacific, who is going to speak about Cyclone Mocha, in particular, in particular the emergency food aid, uh, vital in worse affected areas that are already facing the multiple crises in Myanmar and Bangladesh. Uh, Ms. Webb, over to you. Uh, thank you so much. I trust you can hear me. Um, Very well, uh, ladies, thank you. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, having been to both Sitway and uh, Cox's Bazaar in the past, I can tell you that Cyclone Mocha has dealt a really cruel blow to some of the people who were really living on the brink uh, advance in advance of the storm. Um, this part of the Bay of Bengal hosts an incredibly vulnerable uh, group of populations and people while Myanmar was worst hit, uh, its people have been suffering from the combined effects of conflict, political and economic crises for many years now. Uh, and on the other side of the border in Bangladesh, large numbers of vulnerable Bangladeshi families live alongside the largest refugee camp, which is home to almost one million Rohingya who depend almost entirely on humanitarian assistance. The cyclone left a trail of devastation across Myanmar's Rakhine state. Um, houses are flattened, roads have been cut off, uh, hospitals and schools have been destroyed, and telecommunications, as you know, uh, were severely disrupted. Uh, our own office and warehouses also sustained some damage, though we're moving fast to repair them. Heavy rains triggered flash floods and landslides, and today we estimate that at least 800,000 people in the path of the cyclone need emergency food assistance. Greater needs for food, shelter, water, health, and other humanitarian aid are expected to be revealed as we reach more areas. And while Bangladesh was spared a direct hit, um, nearly half a million Bangladeshis and thousands of Rohingyas living in the camps have lost their homes and assets. The World Food Program's response started even before the storm hit. Ahead of landfall, we had reached 28,000 Bangladeshi in Teknaf uh, with anticipatory cash uh, assistance. That allowed them to prepare for the cyclone before it was too late, uh, and this was done with thanks to support from ECHO. Right after the worst had passed, we were already reaching thousands of refugees uh, with emergency food assistance in the camps, and we've worked around the clock so that regular food support can resume. In Myanmar, for a couple of days now, we've already been uh, resuming emergency food distributions to families in evacuation shelters in Rakhine State and in Magwe region. We are mobilizing quickly to expand that assistance to the worst affected townships, and we plan to reach at least 800,000 people in the worst hit areas of Rakhine, Magwe, and Chin for an initial three months. Um, almost half of those people affected had already been displaced by conflict, and having visited some of the areas quite recently, um, there shelters were extraordinarily vulnerable and I can't imagine that there is very much left that they can rely on until aid arrives. In both countries, the needs are immense. Bangladesh, uh, the calamity is striking right at the same time as we are facing a very severe funding crisis. In March of this year, 
uh, funding shortages forced WFP to reduce the value of food vouchers for refugees living in the Cox's Bazaar camps. And to give you a sense of the magnitude, that now amounts to just 10 cents per meal per person, uh, which is really stretching uh, our ability to, uh, to assist minimum levels of nutrition. We urgently need 56 million US dollars until the end of the year to be able to continue to provide uh, the very bare minimum assistance to people in those camps. In Myanmar, we're stepping up, uh, and so we need additional funding to be able to reach even more people than we did at, uh, at the beginning of the year. We require now 60 million US dollars to assist a total of 2.1 million people. That includes the 800,000 affected by the cyclone Mocha. In summary, the cyclone has made a bad situation much, much worse for millions of people who were already struggling to cope in very precarious conditions. And as the sheer scale of the disaster emerges, WFP, our UN and NGO partners are working to get aid to those affected as quickly as possible. Thank you very much, Ms. Webb, for that update. Uh, questions from Ms. Webb? Yes, Christoph of AFP, Over to you. Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking my question. I was just wondering uh, about uh, Myanmar. Do you have any assistance by authorities? Uh, I mean, you were talking uh, about the conflict in the region that has been the most affected, and I was just wondering if uh, the government, uh, maybe even the army, if you get any help from them, if you want any. Um, if you couldn't give us any information on that. Thank you. Thanks so much. Uh, we operate uh, independently of the de facto authorities, uh, but we have been given access to the areas. Uh, this is a, a, an arrangement that existed before the cyclone where movement within the country needs to be approved in advance. And we have received access to some of the affected areas and are negotiating uh, an expansion of that. Thank you. Uh, further questions? Yes. We have a colleague from Andalusia News Agency in Turkey. Go ahead. Uh, thank you for taking my question, Rhonda. Uh, my question is about uh, uh, dead people. Uh, after the cycle of Mocha, uh, th uh, there, is some, uh, there is some confusion about the uh, uh, number of dead people. Uh, the United, uh, United Nations and uh, its organization uh, do not clearly report the number of dead people. Also, there uh, are different reports from the uh, uh, local media. Uh, can you provide that uh, how many people that uh, uh, for uh, after this disaster? Uh, if not, uh, uh, what is the reason for that? Thank you so much. Thanks so much. I'm afraid WFP is really not the right organization to be asking for uh, information about casualties. Um, our focus is on the 800 million people who are still alive and require our assistance. I expect that uh, other agencies might have more information to share with you uh, about the, the number of people who have been uh, sadly killed or, or injured on that. Um, our focus is very much on opening up access to those who still need our assistance today. Thank you very much. Um, we will try to get figures for you. Um, we know that there have been indeed some significant casualties, but we'll try to get those figures for you. Further questions for Ms. Webb? 
No, I don't see. Thank you very much for joining us uh, this morning, this afternoon, your time, uh, and good luck to you in your efforts there. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much. We'll now turn to uh, Matthew of UNHCR, who has uh, an update on the UNHCR appeals for safety of civilians in aid as one million displaced by the Sudan crisis. Over to you, Matt. Morning, Rolanda, and good morning to everyone. Yeah, a quick update from us on the situation in uh, in and around uh, Sudan. Over a month since the fighting have started, we're making an urgent appeal for the safety of civilians and to allow humanitarian aid to move into Sudan as we continue to scale up our response for the over one million people who have now been recorded as displaced within Sudan or to neighboring countries. Within Sudan, people are braving danger, notably moving from Khartoum, Darfur and other unsafe areas. Around 88,000 refugees hosted by Sudan have fled to Khartoum, have, sorry, have fled Khartoum for safety in White Nile, Gedaras, Kasala, Madani, and Port Sudan. In those locations, the UNHCR is delivering critical assistance, including, of course, shelters, household items, clean water and sanitation, healthcare, and education support for refugees and other people who are displaced. In White Nile, over 75,000 South Sudanese refugees have arrived from Khartoum and UNHCR is verifying new arrivals, settling them into camps and providing essential relief items while coordinating food distribution with WFP. Eritrean, Ethiopian and other refugees arriving in eastern Sudan are also being registered and transferred to camps. In total, over 843,000 people have been internally displaced within the country, according to the IOM, with neighboring governments and UNHCR having recorded almost a quarter of a million crossing borders to date. The numbers of those fleeing to Egypt, which is the largest host, are rapidly increasing. Um, And with partners, we estimate that the numbers currently are around 5,000 everyday arrivals. That makes a total of almost 110,000 Sudanese who have entered the country, according to the government. The main entry points along Egypt's southern border are Hustul and Argin. And our partner, the Egyptian Red Crescent, estimates that 90% of the people crossing move north uh, very swiftly to Cairo or to other urban areas. Uh, We're also scaling up our assistance in Aswan, which has become something of a transit area for people moving to the north. Uh, We're providing emergency assistance at the border through the Egyptian Red Crescent, uh, and new arrivals uh, continue to approach our offices, particularly in Cairo, uh, where they're supported with registration and pre-registration protection services. Many of those who have approached us uh, are in a distressed State, having been exposed to violence or traumatic conditions in Sudan and having suffered arduous journeys. Many have also lost or been separated from their family uh, and in need of urgent medical treatment. Child protection arrangements have been activated for unaccompanied and separated children, including so-called best interest procedures, as well as family tracing. We're also providing support for community-based responses. We have a structure in place in the country given the number of refugees that were already hosted by Egypt prior to this crisis. 
In South Sudan, arrival rates remain high at around 1,500 a day. And of the 63,000 who have arrived, many were South Sudanese refugees in Sudan. Uh, most arrive via the Renk crossing in Upper Nile State. The transit facility near the border uh, is becoming perilously crowded and resources are extremely stretched. And that, in, of course, increases the risks to those who arrive. Uh, despite the logistical challenges, efforts are being made to move people away from those border areas, uh, including via road or via river boats. In Chad, uh, we've delivered relief items to almost 10,000 families, and we've stepped up our monitoring to address the most pressing protection concerns. Most new arrivals are still in remote transit sites near the border with very limited resources. Uh, with our partners, we've started to relocate new arrivals uh, this week to existing camps, which are further away from the border. Initially, 20,000 newly arrived Sudanese refugees will move to the camps where they'll receive family shelter and access to education and to healthcare. The imminent onset of the rainy season is adding to the urgency. As ever, the notes uh, will be provided to you uh, and shared online. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew, and, and um, for sharing the notes as well. We have uh, Emma of Reuters, a question for you. Go ahead, Emma. Good morning, uh, Matthew. Two questions, please. Um, you're pleading for safe passage. Uh, am I to assume then that the agreement in Jeddah has not made any difference on the ground? And, and secondly, um, the number of refugees and displaced so far, I'm wondering how it compares with your initial projection through to October of over 800,000. Is this happening at roughly the pace that you anticipated at the beginning, or is it going faster than you originally anticipated? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Emma. Um, you mentioned uh, the agreement in Jeddah. Of course, I think that commitment was extremely important, and I'm sure all our other partners in the United Nations would agree that the commitment to allow civilians to flee the fighting and to allow aid much urgently needed aid to come into the country is absolutely essential. Unfortunately, what we've seen in the last couple of days is continued horrendous fighting on the ground, shelling, uh, bombing. Uh, and it's extremely important that what was committed to in Jeddah is actually enacted on the ground so that uh, much needed aid can, can come in. Um, in terms of the pace of the movement, uh, certainly in the last few days, and it depends which country you're talking about, uh, we have seen uh, some increases. Uh, the overall planning figure you referred to initially was somewhere over 800,000. That was then revised up to just over 1 million. Um, so I don't think we're seeing anything in these movements that suggests that we would change that planning figure. It, it looks like it's still realistic at this stage. Thank you, Matthew. And, and simply to echo what Matthew suggests, of course, the UN welcomes the signing of the parties of the Declaration of Commitment to Protect Civilians. And of course, so we'll spare no effort to assist uh, that the declaration is implemented properly. Further questions for, for Matthew? No, I don't see any. So I'd like to thank you very much and uh, have a good afternoon.
I'd like to now invite uh, two of our guests from WHO and from UNICEF to join me here on the podium. Okay, on my right, uh, Mr. Henry Gray, who is WHO's Incident Manager for the Global Cholera Response. And joining me shortly on my left soon <laughs> is Mr. Jerome Fachman Zambruni, uh, who is UNICEF's Public Health Emergency Unit Head. Uh, they are going to speak to a Strategic Preparedness and Response Plan, the SPRP, for cholera. Um, over to maybe Mr. Gray, if you want. Thank you very much, uh, and thank you very much for making time for us today. Uh, so I thought I'd start with just a, a little bit of a, um, uh, an update on the, the, the situation, uh, the global situation in terms of cholera. Um, the, the, the situation is bad. Um, more countries are reporting um, cases of cholera, including countries that are not used to dealing with cholera. Uh, we're seeing more cases reported. Um, Mozambique and Malawi alone have, uh, have uh, reported 90,000, more than 90,000 cases this year already. Uh, and we're also seeing worse outcome for patients uh, than we've uh, than we have for for ten uh, for more than ten years, with uh, case fatality rates far exceeding the one uh, the one percent that uh, we would anticipate in cholera outbreaks. Uh, this year, um, we have seen uh, 24 countries reporting cholera already by by uh, mid May. Last year, uh, the same time period, we saw 15 countries. Um, and we are anticipating uh, this year um, even more countries reporting uh, with the, uh, the seasonal shift uh, in cholera cases. Huge progress has been made over the last uh, couple of decades uh, in um, cholera prevention, um, but the, the current situation uh, risks us going backwards. Uh, today, WHO estimates that uh, a billion people across 43 countries are at risk of cholera. The drivers for this situation are, are well known to us. Um, poverty, conflict, and now climate change, and the resulting displacement of, uh, of, of these factors. With the, the, the increase in the number of countries affected uh, by cholera, the resources that were available are now more uh, for, for uh, prevention and response are more thinly spread. Uh, Oral cholera vaccine um, is, a, is a very good example of that. The, the supply of, uh, of vaccine is just insufficient for the demand, uh, and that, that means we are, we're not able to, uh, to uh, provide enough vaccine for the ongoing outbreaks, and certainly we have, we have stopped prevention campaigns uh, in identified cholera hotspots. Over 18 million doses of oral cholera vaccine have been requested this year. Um, only 8 million have been made available. Um, you, you may remember um, um, my colleague Philippe Barboza uh, briefed you uh, a, a few weeks ago um, that, that we've had to reduce our, our cholera vaccination strategy, uh, halving the number of doses uh, of, uh, of vaccine to try and sp to, to spin it out. Uh, uh, and so we're now dosing only with one, one dose of vaccine, which, which doesn't give the same length of protection. Basically, the, the, the outlook is bleak. Um, we haven't had enough investment in the long-term strategies that have been identified by the Global Task Force on Cholera Control, particularly in access to safe water and sanitation. And today we have insufficient um, uh, funds available for, for immediate response. And that's going to lead to a 
greater loss of life, lives that, that should be saved. So while we continue with, uh, with the work on the, the long-term uh, cholera control, um, we also need to surge uh, our uh, emergency response to deal with the current, uh, the current uh, situation. So today, WHO is launching a 12-month strategic preparedness, readiness, and response plan um, that will cover uh, over 40 countries in acute crisis uh, with active outbreaks uh, or at high risk of uh, cholera outbreaks. And we're launching this alongside UNICEF's call to action, which Jerome will brief you on uh, uh, shortly. With the plan, uh, we're going to be working alongside uh, ministries of health and partners to reinforce disease surveillance, uh, to, to spot outbreaks uh, as before they spread, uh, laboratory capacity to test for cases rapidly, case management to get people to treatment quickly, uh, infection prevention control, health messaging, water testing and vaccination. The aim is to drastically reduce cholera deaths and uh, cholera transmission while ensuring minimal disruption to essential health and social services. Uh, the key here is speed. Cholera kills quickly uh, and, and we need to react quickly to save lives. So WHO is going to ask for $160 million uh, for, for these 40 plus countries over the next 12 months. And this figure sits alongside UNICEF's call to action request of $480 million. It's really important that, that, that people understand that the two agencies are working extremely closely together to respond and prepare in a coherent fashion. So we, we Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, excerpts uh, from a press conference held uh, earlier this week uh, at the United Nations uh, in New York City. And uh, it shows uh, within context uh, the horrendous uh, humanitarian crisis taking place in Sudan. Uh, but Sudan, of course, is not isolated. There are other geopolitical regions uh, which are also suffering a similar fate. And this is the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayome Azikawe. And uh, we're going to um, move into another report uh, in regard uh, to developments uh, inside uh, of the Republic of Sudan. And as uh, we have been uh, discussing over the last five weeks, the clashes uh, between the Rapid Support Forces and the Sudanese Armed Forces, of course, has set back uh, the struggle for a democratic transitional dispensation uh, in uh, the Republic of Sudan uh, with the two uh, leading military structures at odds with each other, uh, fighting each other, resulting, as we heard earlier, in the displacement of hundreds of thousands, and as well uh, as uh, the deaths of several hundred people. Let's listen uh, to this uh, discussion on the Sudan conflict, whether or not it is beyond control. Hi, I'm Femi O.K. Thanks for watching the stream. Today on the stream, Sudan, life in limbo. Some of the best political analysis I've heard coming out of the current conflict in Sudan has come from a farmer. I really want you to listen to this. This is Kamal al-Bashir. In four years, the various leaders have been unable to do anything 
And finally, we have this war. For four years, we've been told that the transition to civil authority would take just one year. Enough. In four years, they've not been able to form a government. You can't move the country forward. Do you move it backwards? At the end, you take us to war for your own personal interests, be it Hermeti, former Prime Minister Hamdok, Army Chief Burhan, or the devil. All of them are losers. But the biggest losers of all, of course, civilians. Adazira's Hiba Morgan has more from the city of Omdurman. Since the start of the fighting in mid-April, aid has not been able to come into the capital for those who need it. And the needs are huge. Many people say that they can no longer afford to buy food because of the increase in prices. And many others say that they can no longer buy because they've not been able to access their bank accounts and have no cash on hand to be able to afford basic food commodities. Residential areas in the capital have also been cut off from power and water for more than a month. We are going to be looking today at how the people of Sudan are faring while two warring generals fight around them in Khartoum and West Darfur state. How are they doing? Joining our conversation, we have Matt Nashet. He's a journalist who has reported widely on Sudan. He's in the Egyptian capital, Cairo. Dalia Abdulmonem is a Sudanese journalist and political analyst. She joins us from London. And Sabongani uh, Kayola is a Sudan country director at Mercy Corps. She joins us from Port Sudan. So, hello, everybody. Really great to have you here. Plus, our online audience who are also standing by to be in the comment section on YouTube. I, I, I want to play a, a thought here from Dr. Mohammed Abu Bakr. And I, I'm just going to give you a warning because he's going to be talking about sexual violence. And what I want to know, Matt, Dalia, Sabonkani, is... Is the war on civilians? Because what Dr. Mohammed has to say makes me think that the generals are targeting civilians. Let's have a look. look let's have a listen. In recent weeks, there has been escalating um, recordings and reportings of uh, sexual violence within the capital itself, as well as outside of Khartoum. Um, mostly reported to be committed by the rapid support forces and confirmed most of these cases. And the biggest fear is that if that is left unchecked and if that these types of actions are left unchecked, this is only going to get worse. So this doesn't look like it's crossfire. This looks like it's deliberately going for the people who are caught in the conflict. Matt, your thoughts? I want to talk to all of you about this. Matt, you start. Yeah, I mean, it, oh, oh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's both. You know, yeah. civilians are caught in the crossfire, and uh, there certainly are civilians that are being targeted, uh, I think, both on an individual basis and on an organizational structural basis. Um, so what we are seeing is, is um, you know, questions already in regards to the chain of command, specifically as it relates to the rapid support forces. Um, and so uh, it doesn't appear that um, the leader of the rapid support forces has maybe full control over his forces, nor does he really seek to have full monopoly control of his forces. Maybe that's another question as well. Mm. And so we're really seeing a free-for-all in terms of raiding homes on their part, in terms of um, using sexual violence and rape as weapons of war. And then we're also seeing uh, the arbitrary nature of it from the rapid support forces in terms of um, detaining numerous young men on the street as well 
um, with based on no evidence and then interrogating them, thinking that they could be spies for the army. Very briefly, on the army side, it appears to be actually more specifically targeted, at least within elements of the army or their supporters, uh, perhaps some, some of their supporters from, from the old uh, regime of Omar al-Bashir, in which we're seeing specific activists that are engaged service provision, um, journalists, for instance, um, medics within hospitals that played a, a significant role in demonstrations against uh, the former regime of Bashir are now suddenly being targeted with death threats and right. calls and, and, uh, and things of this nature from supporters of the army side. So we're seeing targeted violence. We're seeing violence on an arbitrary scale as well. And we're also seeing violence, I think, on a structural scale um, on, on both levels. So Bongani, I can see you nodding. Articulate that nod for us, please. Um, to jump in here, I think when we when we look at the people who are left behind, these are people who were already vulnerable even before the start of this crisis. So you think of the people who were living in poverty. Those are the people who can't afford to leave the city. They're the ones who are left behind, the ones who may not have the connections or the resources to be able to leave and flee to a safer space. And their vulnerability is being compounded by everything that's continuing to happen in, in the city of Khartoum and elsewhere. Oh, goodness me, Dalia, you, yeah, Dalia, yeah, go ahead. I mean, <clears throat> I think if you look at our history as to, in Sudan, what both the RSF and uh, the army are doing is not new. I mean, if you just look recently, the recent conflict in Darfur, or the Nuba Mountains, you know, they have precedents. This has happened before, but the difference is it's now come to the center. So now people are more aware of it, but this is not new. The, the, the cost of the war on civilians has never been the number one factor or the number one uh, issue of concern for either side. So I'm not surprised that there's, you know, we're being hit from the ground in terms of the RSF looting and ransacking of homes and buildings and the, and the viol sexual viol violations that have been going on, and we've been hit from the sky by the army using its, you know, uh, air force to target, supposedly target the RSF, when in fact they're hitting the infrastructure of the capital, like hospitals, you know, uh, there was a, a mosque in, uh, I think Hiba Morgan actually reported in it, on it, there was mm -hmm. a mosque that was hit, churches have been raided. So we as the civilians have had no respite since this conflict started. And what it, the cost on us is the least, concerned, I think, not just for the two generals, but also for the international community, simply because it's how long has it taken for any organization to actually step in and say we're sending in humanitarian aid or opening a, a safe passage for aid to come through. They had that chance when they were evacuating foreign nationals, but nothing came. And now it seems that there's also the huge risk of their happening, of looting happening for office aid, mm. because there is no control. The Jeddah agreement is basically worth the paper. It's, it's not even worth the paper it was signed on because neither side is complying with the Jeddah agreement, so this is, this which is the be, basic rules yeah. of, 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 of war. Exactly. So, they, you know, neither side is complying with it. You know, the, the rapes are, I mean, I'm, I, I've, been re, I've, been for, I've been doing some research on the, the, the sexual violence and rape of girls and it's staggering what is happening. It is un it's underreported. Hospitals are understaffed. Ho hospitals are barely functioning. 
you know, food is running out. The UN re released a report saying half the population of, the, of Sudan, some nearly 25 million, are in need of help, are in need of aid. Dalia, let me so, just bring in some, some more thoughts here. This is from Doctors Without Borders because they absolutely back up what you are saying. And this is Jean Nicolas who spoke to us a little bit earlier. Here he is. The situation in Sudan is critical for all civilians in the countries, whether they are uh, living in active uh, conflict zone or in other parts of the country. The healthcare system is uh, collapsing um, due to the fighting, due to the uh, targeting of uh, healthcare facilities and the looting of those facilities. Um, the medical supply is desperately needed and the population is uh, also not accessing or the basic needs like uh, drinking water or food. Sipongani, over a month ago we were saying, um, as an international community, people in Sudan, the Sudanese diaspora were saying, we need your help. What have you seen that's different in the past month? Um, to jump in on what Dahlia said, the feeling of abandonment overwhelmingly uh, occasioned by the evacuation of foreign staff from Khartoum and uh, the feeling of abandonment by humanitarian organizations is 100% understandable. Um, sitting on that side, it, it's a very difficult decision for one to make. Um, when the conflict started as an organization, we first and foremost paused our operations because we had to step back and balance the humanitarian imperative against the state safety and well-being of our staff, Sudanese and non-Sudanese. Um, and once we were ready to get on the ground and start working, the current situation is unprecedented. So we're essentially going to be putting the lives of our staff at risk by asking them to provide um, this assistance that is so badly needed. And it's a very, very difficult situation to be in where we want to help, but by, do, by going in, um, we would be increasing the risk profile of all our staff, and this is not just international staff, but our Sudanese staff as well. Our own staff have been displaced, um, so we had an office of 40 staff in Khartoum, and over half of that number have left the city. Um, and as a leader of an organization, it's very difficult for me to say to my team, oh, hey, get up and go and provide help when their own lives are at risk. Um, our facilities have been looted, um, and our own staff have lost everything as well. We haven't been able to pay salaries uh, in some cases, um, and it's very difficult for our own team members as well. We do recognize the huge role that local initiatives have played um, in being at the forefront of assistance in many communities, and we do recognize that we need to support these efforts and not undermine them or overwhelm them. Um, and so as we're thinking about responding, we're saying to ourselves, how do we continue to support these local initiatives um, and continue to provide the assistance that is much needed? But from our side, it's also a very, very difficult situation, given that there are no guarantees for the safety of humanitarian actors, which is something that Bongani, So it's very difficult mean that you can't help. You've decided our security and our lives and then the security and the lives of the people you're trying to help, you just decide, you make that decision, we can't help right now. We are helping. So collectively, as an NGO community, we're currently active in 14 out of Sudan's okay. 18 states. 
um, doing a range of things, healthcare, uh, provision of uh, food assistance, um, non-food items. So we are definitely on the ground, but the scale of, an, of the needs overwhelms um, mm. the resources that we're able to get our hands on, again, because a lot of our facilities have been looted and we can't access Got them, it. the ones that are still standing. Yes, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's also quite refreshing of uh, the need to, uh, uh, or the plan to support local initiatives um, for two reasons. Uh, one, I think they already have the structures in place in order to um, assist people uh, with the most fundamental needs, and, and they, they probably have, you know, the best, um, you know, understanding of, of the risks that are that are there and how to do that because they're 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 still present in that situation. But secondly, I, I think in terms of in terms of aid, you know, a decentralized approach um, should absolutely be um, should absolutely be the uh, the approach that's taken here. Uh, in the past, we've seen in Sudan um, more centralized approaches with aid. We've seen authorities intentionally try to um, divide and conquer, I guess, the aid community in a way uh, between INGOs and local NGOs and UN agencies and their donors accordingly, sometimes putting them under different regulations. And and the reason for that is essentially to try to consolidate aid efforts um, and then try to weaponize aid accordingly from communities that might live in enemy lines or to closely dispatch uh, military intel to uh, follow uh, other aid groups accordingly. So what we're seeing is that there's a lot at stake, and there's a lot at stake uh, purely because um, we know that there's not a lot of humanitarian aid coming from for Sudan, probably in compared to uh, a number of other crises in the budget that's probably allocated to Ukraine in comparison and, and other crises in the world right now. And so with that little aid and with the country essentially, um, you know, the economy devastated, it would be entirely predictable for... Um, you know, the authorities and particularly the army here, which would claim to be the imprinted um, legitimate institution um, compared to the RSF, to impose regulations once again in order to consolidate aid, effort, aid efforts and essentially cannibalize that aid. So I think the way around this is, is exactly what was mentioned. In order to decentralize aid and assist local, um, you know, already local civil society community structures, um, as much as possible, because I think that makes it significantly more difficult right. um, for aid efforts to be consolidated accordingly by the authorities. Dalia, I also think there's several problems that are going to pro crop up in the, in the near future. Uh, the rainy season is coming up, and the more people, there's, there's more internally displaced people, the more that they will flood into other countries. And our surrounding neighbors already have their own problems. So you're looking at a humanitarian issue that could very easily engulf the whole horn of Africa, so to speak, in a way, because we border Ethiopia, Egypt, you know, Chad, uh, Central African Republic, and South Sudan. And if it's already taken this long for aid or humanitarian assistance to come through, and I completely understand, you know, the whole shock, you know, it was a shock to everyone when, it, when, when, the, when the war erupted. But speed is of the essence. I mean, I think, in a way, taking your sweet time, you know, as, as, as NGOs or as UN agencies is to our detriment as Sudanese. 
And already we've, we've all been hearing and seeing of the problems that Sudanese who have fled or managed to flee are facing, whether it's at the borders of Egypt or trying to get to Saudi or, or, or going to, to Chad. So I'm just, my worry is in, within a month or two months, the situation is going to, even be, it's going to become even worse. Mm-hmm. And then what are we going to do? I mean, already as it is, as a Sudanese, I mean, my hands are tied. I, there's only so much I can do from, there was only so much I could do when I was in Sudan three weeks ago. And there's even less that I can do even being away from it. And so if I can't do that much and the and agencies, NGOs can't do that much, then what's going to happen next? And the, the picture that I can, the picture that is, that's forming in my head is a very grim and dire picture. And I'd hate to think what would happen if speed is not of the essence. You know, you know, it's not being pushed forward. I think there needs to be more noise being made. I think there needs to be more attention paid to this to this to this crisis, and it's not it's it's just it's frustrating to me as a Sudanese to see that where we are right now, and I still think the reaction of the international media, NGOs, UN is very slow, and it should have been sped up because, like, like Matt mentioned, in regards to to Ukraine, I think a week within the Ukraine war. You know, aid was rushing in, visa, pro- visa that, processing was simplified, made quicker. Something, something occurred to me, this is the headline that came out of the Guardian about Sudan. I'm just going to show it on my laptop. Uh, and this was from the same person who created a, an incredible scheme for Ukrainians to live in the UK. And, and he's saying, recreate UK homes for Ukraine scheme for Sudan refugees, urges one of the original plan's architects. So why can't we do exactly what we did for Ukrainians for refugees from Sudan who've been displaced? I want to share something with you. This is from one of my colleagues. He was reporting from Chad, which is where some people are fleeing to. And then Dahlia, somebody who is from Sudan, and you're seeing these refugees. I really want you to tell me, what does this feel like? when you see this. Let's have a look. The border between Chad and Sudan is porous and wild. Lately, you can see smoke rising in the distance, faint and far away. But those living here say that is Al-Janena, the capital of West Darfur, burning. The most active hotspot in Sudan's conflict, second only to Khartoum. Unarmed villagers caught up in violence, a consequence of the fight for control of a country. Refugees here say they escaped in the night, searching for days to find a safe crossing. Not everybody came. We left the old people. They're still there. We can't go back to get them. We don't know what to do. Dada, you had a conversation recently with friends about when can we go home? When are we going to go home? What was that conversation like? Tell us. Um, pessimistic. Um, because we all do want to go back, but we don't know how or when, or if it's even possible to go back. I mean, initially I thought I'd be back within three months. Now I'm thinking maybe a year. Another friend told me, no, two to three. So I don't know because I don't see any silver lining in in, in the horizon. I don't see any chance of either of these two men to you know, put down their guns or put down their weapons and say, okay, let's talk, because that's not going to happen. And is there, 
Often when we talk about Sudan, we, we talk about, oh, this transition to a, a process where civilians take over. Is that just abandoned? Is that just that? That's not realistic. The military will never allow Sudanese civilians to run their own country. Do you still have your seat? Matt, Matt, Matt wants in on this as no, well. Yeah. Dalia, Dalia. Yeah. No, no, no okay. I'm just saying already you can see there's a split within Sudanese, those who think we should support the army no matter what and forgetting whatever atrocities they've committed in the past mm. and what they're committing right now because they'd rather support the institution that is the Sudanese army than the paramilitary forces. But in my book, they're both equally the same. But at the same time, you can't have a country without an army. And I also say our politicians also failed us, just like so many other people have failed us as civilians, as Sudanese. So I don't know. I mean, I wish I had a, an yeah. answer and say this is what it's going to be like or this is how we should, this is the route that we should take. Yeah. But I don't think anyone actually knows the answer to what, yeah, of course. What's, what's going so, to yeah, happen. I have, I have a number of questions from our audience who are watching right now. I want you to answer them very quickly. So... Um, Hmm. Uh, Bongani, help me with this one. What measures are in place for civilian contributions to help with the Sudan crisis? Quick suggestion. So the revised, thank you. <laughs> the revised humanitarian response plan was launched yesterday, mm. um, and a number of organizations working in Sudan, including Mercy Corps, have channels for individuals to make donations. There's also a number of locally organized initiatives. Um, if you follow Matt and Dahlia on Twitter, mm. you'll be able to see some locally organized uh, initiatives like that you can donate some, to. Some guest collaboration here. Thank you for that. Mustafa asks, uh, I'm going to give this one to you, Dahlia. Uh, Mustafa says, I'm, I'm very much worried about the availability of life-saving medications. One of my friend's mothers, after her heart surgery, is now in Omdurman. Um, hmm. We, we spoke to this earlier about the complete breakdown of facilities that you would normally expect, utilities that you normally expect. What can you say to that viewer? Get in touch with the local resistance committees. In, every, in the three main areas of Khartoum, Bahri, Umdurman and Khartoum, the resistance committees are working to, 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 make, to try and get the you know, needed medication to those who can't get out or can't get it themselves. It's the same thing in, in Darfur. Just, just get in touch with the local resistance committees. If you ask anyone, everyone, this is how Sudan works. You know, you ask someone, sure. someone else will, will help you and guide you. So yeah. that's my best advice. Don't risk it going to a hospital. Don't risk it trying to find medical attention. Just yeah. get help and they will come in and they will help as much as they can. Matt, I, I, I noticed a tweet of yours, which was a really bold tweet, which was Sudan security rivals have plunged the country into war but how Sudan arrived at this point is a story in itself. I'm going to send people to the tweet because it's a long story. But how would you describe the story now in a sentence? Where are we now? Oh, yeah, I mean, right now I think we're, we're in the, the worst possible but most predictable scenario um, that we could have arrived to. Um, maybe it wasn't predictable when we were in the heat of the moment, but uh, hindsight is 2020, as they say. And uh, you know, the the one thing that I, I wanted to to add on to to Dalia's comments in regards to whether or not that, uh, 
a civilian governance or, or transitional Matt, governance. You've democracy. got one sentence left in this entire show. Use it wisely. Go ahead. Okay. I don't think uh, for a lot of international partners, genuine civilian rule mm-hmm. um, was truly uh, on the table. Thank you, Matt. Thank Absolutely. you, Dahlia, and thank you, Subongani. One sentence left in this particular episode of the stream, but we will invite you back. This conversation is not over. Thanks for watching. I'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. Welcome back, and that was a panel discussion on the current uh, humanitarian and political and security crisis inside the Republic of Sudan, uh, where hundreds of people have been killed over the last five weeks uh, due to clashes between uh, the Rapid Support Forces and the Sudanese Armed Forces. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, May 20th, uh, 2023. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment uh, of our program. I'll give you the moon and the stars at night, the morning sun shining big and bright. Oh, I've got a lot to offer, darling. I've got a lot to offer, darling I'll sprinkle raindrops on your lovely face I'll wrap you in clover with a warm embrace I've got a lot to offer, darling I've got a lot to offer, darling And I'll take you for a ride on a big white cloud Way up in the blue And every song that the robin sings Girl, he'll sing just for you And I'll kiss your lips with the morning dew And every blooming rose will be just for you I've got a lot to offer, darling I've got a lot to offer, darling And I'll take you for a ride on a big white cloud Way up in the blue And every song that the robins sing Girl, he'll sing just for you Welcome back, and uh, that was the music of Johnny Nash uh, with the track entitled I've got a lot to offer, darling, uh, from the 
soul folk uh, album uh, by the legendary Johnny Nash. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, May 20th, uh, 2023. Yesterday, I represented the 98th anniversary of the birth of uh, Malcolm X, uh, El-Hajj Malik Sabaz. And we're going to, of course, in light of the upcoming 60th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity, the predecessor to the African Union, uh, Malcolm X, of course, uh, sought uh, to uh, bring together the struggles of the African-American and African peoples and African peoples throughout the world. And, of course, uh, this address, uh, which was delivered uh, on May 29th of 1964, in New York City, uh, took place uh, just several days after he returned uh, from uh, his second trip to the African continent and his first trip during 1964. Um, after leaving the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X went on a hajj uh, to Saudi Arabia. He also visited several uh, African states, including Egypt and Ghana and Nigeria. And uh, this uh, address was delivered uh, just uh, as we mentioned in the aftermath of his return uh, in uh, May of 1964. He then, in July of 1964, returned to the African continent uh, for another uh, four, four and a half months. And uh, that, of course, was his last trip uh, to Africa in November, returning to the United States in November of 1964. Let's listen to this historic address uh, by uh, Malcolm X on uh, May uh, 29th of 1964. Mr. Chairman, one of my brothers, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, this is, I'm very honored, I feel very honored, it's an honor to me to be able to come back to the militant labor forum again this evening. It's my third time here. I was just telling my brother up here that probably tomorrow morning the press will, will try and make it appear that this little chat that we're having here this evening took place in Beijing or someplace else. They have a tendency to discolor things uh, in that in that way, to try and make people not place the proper importance upon what they hear, especially when they're hearing it nowadays from persons whom they can't control, or as my brother has just pointed out, persons whom they consider. Mr. Chairman, fellow speakers, friends. <laughs> I didn't know until uh, this afternoon uh, about the forum this evening, but one of my co-workers, who was very able and capable, Brother James, told me about it, and I couldn't resist the opportunity to come. I read in the newspaper recently, or at least before I left, some writers said one of my weaknesses is that I can't resist the platform. Well, that's, per that's perhaps true. Uh, whenever you have something to say and you're not afraid to say it, I think you should go ahead and say it and let the chips fall where they may. So I take advantage of all platforms to get off my mind what's on it. Also, they say travel broadens your scope, and recently I've had an opportunity to do a lot of it 
in the Middle East and Africa, and while I was traveling, I noticed that in most of the uh, countries that have recently emerged into independence, they have uh, turned away from the so-called capitalistic system in the direction of socialism. So out of curiosity, uh, I can't resist the temptation to do a little investigating wherever that particular philosophy happens to be in existence or an attempt is being made to bring it into existence. Thirdly, when I, the first time I ever heard about the Blood Brothers, I happened to be in Nigeria, in West Africa, and someone, a doctor, uh, who had, a Nigerian, but who had spent too much time in Europe, <laughs> was the first one to bring it to my attention and, uh, and ask me about it. It didn't make me sad at all. Uh, and I don't see why anybody should be sad or regretful, or if that's the word, in any way, shape, or form, if such does exist. I recall in 1959, uh, when everybody began to talk about the black Muslims, all the Negro leaders said no such group existed. In fact, I recall on the Mike Wallace show, uh, Roy Wilkins was asked about the black Muslims, and he said he never heard of it. And then they flashed the picture of him on the uh, screen shaking hands with me. <laughs> and I think one of the mistakes that our people make, they're too quick to apologize for something that might exist, that the power structure finds deplorable or finds difficult to digest. And without even realizing it, sometimes we try and prove that it doesn't exist. And if it doesn't, sometimes it should. One person who believes that anything the black man in this country needs to get his freedom right now, that thing should exist. As far as I'm concerned, everybody who has caught the same kind of hell that I have caught is my blood brother. And I have plenty of them. Because all of us have caught the same hell. So the question is, if they don't exist, should they exist? Not do they exist, should they exist? Do they have a right to exist? And since when must a man deny the existence of his blood brother? It's like denying his family. <laughs> Excuse me if I speak a little loud here for a moment. If we're going to talk about police brutality, it's because police brutality exists. Why does it exist? Because our people in this particular society live in a police state. A black man in America lives in a police state. He doesn't live in any democracy. He lives in a police state. That's what it is. That's what, what Harlem is. And I recall uh, this book that just came out, uh, written by Lieberman, Silberman, rather, called Crisis in Black and White. I advise everybody here, read it. Crisis in Black and White by Charles Silberman. In my opinion, it's a good analysis of the problems that confront black people as well as white people in this country, and it goes right down to the root cause that has produced all these conditions, and it doesn't apologize for anybody. It shows where the fault lies on both sides. And this uh, book stems from an article that the author originally wrote in Fortune magazine, the March issue, 1962, at which time he stated, that if something isn't done 
to relieve the black people in these Negro communities across the country of the injustices and frustrations that they are confronted with every day, that this country would see a time when the Negro communities from coast to coast would become like the Casbah. The Casbah, I fortunately was able to visit myself two weeks ago. I visited the one in, in Casablanca and I visited the one in Algiers with some of the brothers, blood brothers. Uh, they took me all down into it and showed me the suffering, showed me the conditions that they had to live under while they were being occupied by the French, who were supposedly their friends, supposedly their protectors, supposedly their benefactors. They showed me the conditions that they lived under while they were colonized by these people from Europe. And they also showed me what they had to do to get those people off their backs. The first thing they had to realize that all of them were brothers. Oppression made them brothers. Exploitation made them brothers. Degradation made them brothers. Discrimination made them brothers. Segregation made them brothers. Humiliation made them brothers. And once all of them realized that they were blood brothers, they also realized what they had to do to get that man off their back. They lived in a police state. Algeria was a police state. Any occupied territory is a police state. And this is what Harlem is. Harlem is a police state. It's the police in Harlem, their presence is like occupation forces, like an occupying army. They're not in Harlem to protect us. They're not in Harlem to look out for our welfare. They're in Harlem to protect the interests of the businessmen who don't even live there. They are, they're there. The same conditions that prevailed in Algeria that forced the people, the noble people of Algeria, to resort eventually to the terrorist-type tactics that were necessary to get the monkey off their back, those same conditions prevail today in America in every Negro community. And I would be, uh, other than a man, to stand up here and tell you that the uh, Afro-Americans, the black people who live in these uh, communities under these conditions, are ready and willing to continue to sit around nonviolently and patiently and peacefully looking for some goodwill to change the conditions that exist. No, and you are out of your mind. If you think that our people, it's easy for you to live in another neighborhood and be sympathetic to the cause and then come in with some nonviolent tactics and think that we too will think that that's sufficient. But if you had to live under those conditions and suffer what our people suffer, you would have gotten rid of that nonviolence a long time ago. Police Co Commissioner Murphy is a dangerous man. He's dangerous because either he lacks understanding or he has too much understanding and knows what he's doing. If he is functioning as he is, out of, from lack of knowledge and understanding, he's dangerous. And then if he's doing as he is, from, from understanding, he's dangerous. Because what he's doing is creating a situation that can lead to nothing but bloodshed. It, almost every public statement he makes is designed to give the police in Harlem courage to resort to tactics that are inhuman. And in my opinion, this uh, type of incitement on the part of the police commissioner to make these policemen act other than they should, 
stems from a lack of understanding of the true spirit that exists among the uh, young generation in Harlem today. They have been, uh, he must have been misinformed by some of that old generation who has been uh, ready and willing to suffer brutality at the hands of someone just because he has on a uniform. Nowadays, our people don't care who the oppressor is. Whether he has a sheet or whether he has on a uniform, he's in the same category. And you'll find that... You will find that the, there is a growing tendency among us, among our people, to, to do whatever is necessary to bring this to a halt. And when you have a man like Police Commissioner uh, Murphy, and I'm not against the law. I'm not against law enforcement. I'm not a, you need laws to survive, and you need law enforcement officers to have an intelligent, peaceful uh, society. But we who have, have to live in these uh, places and suffer the type of conditions that exist from officers who lack understanding and lack any human feeling or lack any feeling for the fellow human being, we who have to suffer these things are beginning to see where we are not being considered at all when they select the type of persons that they send into Harlem to uh, enforce the law. So, I'm not here to apologize for the existence of any blood brothers. I'm not here to minimize the factors that hint uh, toward their existence. I'm here to say that if they don't exist, it's a miracle. The recent law that they passed that gives the police the permission to walk in anybody's house without knocking is an anti-Negro law. It's in blunt terms, it's just an anti-Negro law. This law will probably do more to set off a... I don't, nowadays, you're not going to have race riots anymore. You'll have a race war. The day of race riots are outdated. A riot is something that's contained to a certain area. Nowadays, any kind of eruption like that that takes place, you'll find that it will have a chain reaction. It will, it will uh, pop up everywhere, and it won't be limited to this continent. Any effort today that is made to bring uh, massive retaliation against the black population of this country, you will find people who look like the oppressors also experiencing the... Uh, also realizing how it feels to be the victim of mass retaliation in other countries. If those of you who are white have the good of the black people in this country at heart, I, my suggestion is that you have to realize now that the day of nonviolent resistance is over that the day of passive resistance is over, that the day of peaceful demonstration, what kind of demonstration is a peaceful demonstration? <laughs> it's over. Anything, that's as mu anything that is so much an injustice that you are justified to demonstrate against it, then note the one who is the uh, author of the injustice should not, is not qualified to lay the ground rules to you and me on how we're supposed to go about removing that injustice. I can't see it. 
thing you'll see here in America. And please don't blame it on me when you see it. <laughs> you will see the same things that have taken place among other people on this earth whose condition was parallel to that of the 22 million Afro-Americans in this country. The people of China grew tired of their oppress oppressors, and the people rose up against their oppressors. They didn't rise up nonviolently. It was easy to talk about the odds were against them, but 11 of them started out. And today those 11 control 800 million. They would have been told back then that the odds were against them. As the oppressor always points out to the oppressed, the odds are against you. When Castro was up in the mountains of Cuba, they told him the odds were against him. Today he's sitting in Havana, and all the power that this country has can't remove him. They told the Algerians the same thing. What do you have to fight with? <laughs> Today, they have to bow down to Ben Bella. He came out of the jail that they put him in. And today, they have to negotiate with him. Because he knew that the one thing he had on his side was truth and time. The time is on the side of the oppressed today. It's against the oppressor. And truth is on the side of the oppressed today. It's against the oppressor. You don't need anything else. So I would just like to say this in my conclusion. You'll see it. You'll see terrorism that will terrify you. And if you don't think you'll see it, you're trying to blind yourself to the historic development of everything that's taking place on this earth today. You'll see other things. Why will you see them? Because as soon as people realize that it's impossible for a chicken to produce a duck egg, even though they both belong to the same family of fowl, so-called fowl, a chicken just doesn't have it within its system to produce a duck egg. It can't do it. It can only produce according to what that particular system was constructed to produce. The system of this country cannot produce freedom for an Afro-American. It is impossible for this system, this economic system, this political system, this social system, this system, period. It is impossible for it, as it stands, to, to produce freedom right now for the black man in this country. It's impossible. And if ever a chicken did <laughs> produce a, a duck egg, I'm quite sure you'd say that it was certainly a revolutionary <laughs> This is the first time I've heard from Mr. Malcolm X, and I must say I'm very impressed. Um, uh, he funneled his address uh, towards system uh, rather than a people. I would like to know uh, uh, whether he believes in segregation, as the newspapers seem to have implied that he does, or whether he will accept us white people as standing alongside him in his uh, militant fight 
I think that the Afro-American has allowed himself to be tricked whenever he becomes involved in trying to debate integration, segregation, or separation. I'm for human rights. Anything that will enable the black man to become recognized and respected as a human being, any place on this earth, and anyone who is putting forth honest efforts to help the black man realize this particular status, we accept it. But we don't, set, we don't accept any, if you excuse the expression, jive efforts. Uh, young man by the doorway there. Uh. I'd like to address the question about the man. Uh, thinking about crime and violence, crime somehow is usually associated with a lack of education this is part true and you won't find very many people who are afro-american who will admit it but if it is true why it is true that there is a sluggishness intellectual sluggishness academic sluggishness uh, in almost any Negro community, but this exists only because of the uh, result that has come upon us through years and years of slavery and being held down in this society. And this is why I made reference to the book Crisis in Black and White. This particular man uh, gives a very uh, good scientific analysis as to why there, this lethargy exists in the Negro community. It is something that has been created by the system. The system is designed to make the Negro uh, student lose his interest in education almost before he even gets started in school. And the parents, usually, who are also limited where education is concerned and have, who have run into so many barriers and obstacles despite the fact they had education, sometimes they ask themselves, what's the use? So as long as the system that we are in exists, and this system, the, the survival of this system, depends upon the continued exploitation of the black man in this country. The survival of it uh, depends upon the continued uh, uh, degrading of the black man in this country and the necessity of using us as the whipping boy and the alibi and the excuse. As long as this system exists, then you will find that our people will have the same attitude toward education. And, that, and they have a justified I should say they have, an, uh, they have an attitude that can be explained. But at the same time, the burden rests upon the leaders of the Afro-American community to try and instill within the uh, youth especially the desire to further their education because without it, you're not going anywhere on this earth today. I'll say right here. Uh, what do you think of Commissioner Murphy being given a $10,000 raise by Mayor White? <laughs> well, I think that he actually earned it. <laughs> Any man, any man who has the nerve in 1964 to make the statements that Commissioner Murphy has made uh, in behalf of the interests uh, that he represents, they should pay him. <laughs> and they did. Uh, first, oh, sir, two people back there. A uh, uh, woman uh, all the way to the end there.
Is that the question? Okay, well. Make a big question. The uh, organized uh, for self-defense on the uh, same way that the uh, Jewish religious movement in uh, Brooklyn has, and the religious that they would get as much support from the police department. <laughs> <laughs> Did everyone hear the question? Okay. That was uh, Malcolm X, and the question be very good. Well, it's sort of like, uh, you know, the <clears throat> Ku Klux Klan, the, Jan the John Birch Society, the Minutemen, all these organizations organized to defend the, what is it, this America's last line of defense or something like that. The problem is that in this country, every nationality can organize to protect itself to elevate itself socially or politically, or in essences, as a new organization in Brooklyn, to decide to set up its own vigilante system. Uh, you know, in, uh, in Harlem, the fact that as soon as the, even the Negro leaders recognized that the black Muslims were in existence, the fact that they believe in defending themselves, that's a crime. I mean, everybody can do it but the people in the black community. But I believe this. There is this need. As I mentioned earlier, I think the time has come when the community must organize itself to be prepared that when something happens to any individual in the community, they should turn out and be prepared to defend it, not in the sense of violating the law, but to demand that the law enforcement officers enforce the law instead of breaking it. I think this is a real need. We would call it self-defense, but Commissioner Murphy and Mayor Daly would call it uh, hate games. My hand up to that. Um, when you ask, should the same thing be done in Harlem that was done out in Brooklyn? The question answers itself. You don't have to tell black people anywhere in this country today what to do when someone starts uh, oppressing them. And this is the point that I'm trying to get across because if it's not gotten across in time, there's going to be some blood flowing in the street. As long as people think they can come to Harlem, and, th and whether there are cops coming to Harlem or somebody else, and think that they're going to, they can brutalize someone, and, and the one who is being brutalized is going to do nothing but turn the other cheek, they're going to be shot. So the best way to avoid the necessity of having to see someone else's blood flow is to let them know in advance that it will flow. And the, uh, I, if, it, if, if I had to go to jail in the morning, or had to die in the morning, I would die telling Negroes to arm themselves and retaliate to the maximum extent of their ability in the face of brutality, no matter what the odds against them were. They're going to die anyway, die like a man. Now, gentlemen, back there in uh, Corduroy, yeah.
any of the speakers have any opinion on the uh, on the uh, proposals of how you will act? The plan on paper, it sounds good. However, there's a problem in both of the organizations, and it's going to really become clear who they can get to work. The people who are higher up in both of the organizations have a way of coming on to people out in the street that is alienating. In other words, uh, they are quite obviously uh, middle class. They think that all you have to do to make it is to follow certain rules and, and be nice to these people. And we're going to show you how to be nice to these people. Uh, that's a fallacy. That's wrong. It's dead wrong from start to beginning. Also, I think, and this is going to be a problem, if any of their youth work is going to be successful. It's going to be, have to be a lot more radical than anything they've planned. You know, the kids just are not going to be held back. If you talk about the history, the real history of the black man in, in this country or in the world, then they're going to see, once they start doing something, uh, that it's not going to be on the lines laid down by the HARU or ACT programs right now. Not verbatim. It was arranged, there was a luncheon arranged for uh, one Haru representative, the one who was in the this year today, and Genius Griffin. Griffin said that he would like to talk to him because he was interested in serving police before being home. And his only informant up to that time had been police. But if he could get some real data, he would go to Murphy himself. And this party representative would have been going around Holland collecting statements from the people who live in Holland via a portable tape recorder. Took the tapes down and showed us that there were instances of people who had been arrested by policemen, instances of people who had been just beaten by policemen. This is not to mention the fact that Mr. Shabazz mentioned in the Lowe's article that Griffin had himself, when he came up, had seen them. There were just tremendous overwhelming evidence that there was police brutality in Holland. Griffin went back to the New York Times office and he, this is creative journalism, he created an article, he created information, he distorted everything that this party reporter told him. He distorted the things that the tape told him. He came with an article that dealt nothing, not at all, with police brutality, but dealt with the so-called blood brother myth whatever percentage is real or imagined. I don't know if this is mentioned or not. In, 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 not in defense of Junius Griffin, but stemming uh, from a knowledge of how these newspapers function, usually they will get a Negro reporter to go into a, a, a community that they want to 
spread some propaganda about. And after he gathers the information and comes back and submits his article, it's some, oftentimes it's the editors themselves, not that Negro reporter. And after it's done, there's nothing he can say about it if he wants to keep his job. But I've experienced this. Oftentimes, they, and they usually, usually they use a Negro reporter because this lends authenticity to the story. Of course, there's no mention of this in the story. The article, the general picture was Negro or white. Didn't have to mention it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, gentlemen, back there with the paper in his hand, right? The director of the Malcolm X. I don't know, but I'm flexible. <laughs> All right, that's something back there. <laughs> I would like to know is there any administration that isn't flexible? That's in other words, what organization is doing to bring back what we are really here on the Both of those questions are still combined, and I know my brother here will good. But I would, I would like, I would like to. As, as was stated earlier, all of the countries that are emerging today from under the shackles of colonialism are turning towards socialism. I don't think it's an accident. Most of the countries who were colonial powers were capitalist countries. And, and uh, the last what you, a bulwark of capitalism today is America. And it's impossible for a white person to believe in cap, uh, capitalism and not believe in racism. When you find one, yes, you can't have capitalism without racism. And if you find one, and you happen to get uh, that person into a conversation, uh, and they have a philosophy that makes you sure that they don't have this racism in their uh, outlook, usually they're socialists, or their pol uh, political philosophy is socialism. question was, was there any group who wasn't flexible? Well, I'll put it this way. In traveling across country, various press conferences, reporter has invariably asked me, how do I differ from the Democratic and Republican Party? <laughs> Now, on this question, I'm not flexible. <laughs> I say there is no freedom, there is no justice, there is no equality as long as the capitalist system exists on the face of this earth. That the spokesman for this rotten system is the Democratic and Republican Party, and I am their avowed enemy. Now, tactically, I'm flexible. It is I'll work with anybody who's conducting a struggle against the system. But on that principal question, I will not cross class lines. I will defend anybody who's fighting against the system, whether I agree with what they're saying or not. And that's the most intelligent answer I've ever heard on that question. Uh, so right here. Uh, well, 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 well,
got their head beating because they happen to be people and I think right there from the day so it would have been the lucky one, the guy who got their feet the wall had six digits of And uh, I know I read something in some case I can't remember exactly where to check a comment that it's right here in uh, New York City. We used to see uh, just a couple of days, uh, you know, months ago on a subway. You look on a subway, there's a subway poster there that says, Teach your kid judo. Teach your boy karate. It's the best Christmas present you can give him. Uh, uh, this is something wonderful you can do for your kid. Uh, uh, Paul, will you tell back there? Okay. I would like to make a comment on the story that he uh, right. point that, uh, that somebody else mentioned back there before about the kids in school. Uh, if, uh, that is, uh, if your kid, uh, say, has to go in, I mean, and, and see in his school, first he picks up his reader, on, uh, see Dick and Jane in there and so on, with, with uh, everybody in there except for that page on Little Black Sambo. Nobody in there looks like him. Uh, the, uh, this, uh, consider, I mean, that's just symbolic, I mean, but the whole school system is like that. All their books are like that. Everything they teach in the books about history, about government, about everything is like that. That, uh, 
he, he may feel, I mean, they just uh, tear up the uh, books or something, pay no attention to it, and, uh, and, and that is part of the whole syndrome there, that, uh, where you get kids not being interested in learning. Am I missing anybody all the way in the back? I haven't seen any hands. Oh, okay, then. Uh, right here. I am a, a believer, and I think that that the only way the black people in this country are going to be united is on a on a system of black nationalism. Now, I would like to know uh, an organization like CORE, you know, which is a which is a, an integrated organization. Do you think that it's possible to for you know to cause people to me people are never united? Uh, a for something. You said they pick out, you know, an enemy, and then you unite them around this enemy. And I would like to know: Do you do you believe that it's possible for an integrated organization working within a black community, considering the whole past background of black-white relationships in this country, for an organization like this to succeed with 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 the, the Caucasian members conspicuous in the organization? Uh, I don't know whether we're able to see, but I think we will make uh, progress. I think it's uh, very, very important, uh, not only just uh, uh, for Negro-white unity, but it's important, as you said, for Negro unity. Yes, I think they all—I think they all are intertwined. And I uh, don't have the answer as well. We will succeed, but I think we certainly are going to try. We really have to really step up. Uh, own uh, militancy and try even harder. At the same time, we are trying, uh, are organizing and trying to do even more so, and we have to set it up more so. We find ourselves in the community and organizing the, the black people because our struggle is there for the black people in the community. Try to alleviate the problem. And not just we're going to alleviate them, but them to help us unite. And, and that in fact brings on you. Does that answer your question? My answer comment on that. That's a very important question because it, it, it boils right down to the basic tactics that have been employed by the various groups during the past 10 years when the freedom struggle has gotten so much publicity. And if you notice, the outstanding characteristic of the, of the freedom struggle that participated in by integrated groups has always been nonviolence. This is the, anytime you have an integrated group, the emphasis is always upon nonviolence. Why? Because it has been uh, substantiated when you study the, 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 these inter integrated groups, usually the whites, who get involved in the action where the Negro is supposed to benefit if they're successful, are more inclined toward taking a nonviolent approach. Well, this is what's causing the black people to become suspicious. And the groups that are ready to fight usually are those that aren't integrated. So all we say is this. If, and, and I say ready to fight, I mean ready to fight. We, we feel we've waited long enough. And we feel that all this uh, crawling and sitting in and crying in and praying in and begging in hasn't gotten any meaningful results. So the only way... Uh, <laughs> In my recent travels, 
into the African countries and others, it was impressed upon me the importance of having a working unity among all people, black as well as white. But the only way this is going to be brought about, the black ones have to be in unity first. And then those whites who want to help cannot help by joining and leading in the struggle, which they've uh, uh, tried to do in the past. If the whites are genuinely interested in the freedom of the black people in this country, you don't need to give us a crutch. The black man has to be shown how to free himself, and the white one who's sincerely interested has to back whatever that black group decides upon to do, not just because you say. When the Algerians were fighting for their freedom, many French fought on the side of the Algerians. By the same token, many Algerians fought on the side of the French. They're dead now. Uh, if, you, if you will be honest, you'll notice that, the, that there is a tendency right now among the, in the struggle of the black to become very suspicious of the white. So what future does this hold for the whites who are genuinely liberal? The only way they can have a future in the struggle is to face the facts involved and become just as militant, just as... Uh, uh, uncompromising when you're fighting on our side in behalf of our freedom as you would be fighting on your side if it was for your freedom. Don't always be... just like to add a little something to that, and this is going to sound funny because most of us sort of feel white people have been very well organized for a very long time. There are an awful lot of you know, white communities that could stand quite a bit of organization. And there'd be an awful lot of, uh, there are certainly an awful lot of white people who, instead of putting themselves on the line in a black community, ought to try it in their own community, and then maybe they'd sort of get the feeling of what this real, you know, uh, hatred is. Uh, this is sort of hard to happen. We've had a couple of white people work in our office on 8th Avenue, and they've been mistrusted all the way through, not by some of us, but certainly by everyone out on the avenue. Just, just for the sake of efficiency, sometimes, or most of the times, it's the policy not to have white people working with you. Though there are exceptions, and there have to be the exceptions, but you can't, you don't always have the time to figure out who the exception is going to be. And well, this is uh, it's difficult for me to say because I have a, a white uncle and a white wife, but that's the way things have to be. Period. I think what is needed is a recognition of of the needs of the struggle of the black people in this country. Every people must develop their own leadership. That's the key question here. What has to come out of this struggle is a black leadership based in the black community, its own organization. And the best example I can think of is the one in Montgomery, Alabama, where they had one organization, they had one leadership, they had one program, and they spoke for the entire community. There were various nuances of differences within it, but they had a solid front 
and the conduction in conducting that struggle. Another interesting thing about this particular example, the side that's played up is the nonviolent side that is played by the ministers. But now I was down and I happened to know that those young GIs told me to look at him, man. So now I don't want to know those people, and I'm all for this nonviolent stuff, they said. Say, but now if one of them woke up to me thinking I'm going to turn the other cheek, I got news for him. <laughs> and that's an important consideration. There wasn't any violence because they knew. And those young GIs didn't, didn't pick any bones about it. They had a defense guard around Martin Luther King's house in Alabama. And they told me, says, if anything happened to old man Nick, they can just... That's the way they felt about the real leader of that movement. But they weren't nonviolent. They wanted to obey the law and they wanted to do the right thing. But they know what the races down there will do and they were prepared to meet it. But the key question here is leadership. And the big problem now is the crisis within black leadership because of the brainwashing that a certain section of it has had down through the years. Now, it's not a question here, as I see it, of a rejection of whites who want to participate in the struggle. It's just a question here that for a people to achieve their own needs, they must have their own leadership. They must develop it their own way, go through their own experiences. And once they achieve this, then they can work with anybody. But they must develop their own leadership first. And that's yeah. the key question here. Uh. I've been asked to uh, make this uh, welcome announcement that uh, Brooklyn Corps, all right, is uh, organizing a patrol, a car patrol, to have a look at the cops. Uh, if anybody's interested in joining that uh, patrol to uh, do their civic, take care of their civic responsibilities, uh, uh, see me, I'll direct you to somebody here. Uh, uh, this young lady right here. I'd like to make a comment, Mr. Malcolm. Now, you're right, of course, the black people are in the West. But isn't it also possible that if the white people, the poor people, the people down in my neighborhood, the white people, those that don't work, those that are on welfare, those that have nothing, and they got together too, and you help us, we'll help you. You help us get up there. You help us get rid of some of these people that are pressing down on us. No, I Aren't say you could be just you could be just as active in your neighborhood as we're trying as you have been in our neighborhood. Right. Hot. Everybody's going for something. We alone, there are too few of us. There are too many men up there with all their cop cars and everything. That's what they're always telling you. Never let your enemy tell you how, how, uh, how many of you there are. Never let the man that you're against form your opinions. This is the trick that's played on everyone who's oppressed. The first thing, an occupation, uh, when you have a revolution in the country, the first thing you take over is the radio. And then you start telling the people that everybody, the war is over. And, 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 and so all of them surrender. No, they believe that thing right there. And once they take that over, they start telling you uh, where you are and where they are, and you fall right in line. It's plain thought control. The majority of the American people aren't segregationists. That the majority of the American people aren't imperialists. But the government is, the structure is, the power faction is. So... But how, how then do all the majority go along with it? Because those who sit in power over the television, over the radio, and over the press is constantly telling those who are the masses how free they are and how, and how, how this they are and how that they are. 
So the, a mistake is made on your part uh, when you think that white people suffer the same as black people. Uh, uh, or as many Jews will say, well, we're a minority too. Or the Irish will say, well, we used to be a minority. No one's a minority like we are. They, don't, they didn't need civil rights legislation to solve any other minority problem. They didn't need, they, they didn't, it didn't take a civil war to solve any other minority problem. It didn't take Supreme Court decisions to solve any other, uh, other, other minority problem or legislation. It takes none of that other kind, that action to solve the minority problems of these other people. The only real minority in America is the Afro-American. Now, when white people who are oppressed and poor, supposedly, but the poorest white person can go where the richest black person can't go. It isn't, it isn't only uh, 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 poverty of, uh, uh, in money that, one, that we're talking about. Poverty in spirit, poverty in, in freedom, poverty in equality, poverty in human dignity. This is the kind of poverty we're, we're suffering from. So that the richest Negro in this country is still poor. When it comes to freedom, he's broke. When it comes to human dignity, he's broke. This is the kind of poverty we're talking about. So when you find white people who are poor, with all these doors that there are open to them, any door that you knock on, if you're qualified, it'll open. So when you find a poor white person, he's in bad shape. He didn't. I believe the, the, uh, the Freedom Now Party development in Michigan points out an example for all stratas of the population who are being pushed into a status of poverty. One, they must utilize their power, their political power, against the power structure. They can follow the example of the Freedom Now Party by organizing, putting up their own candidates, breaking from the two parties so that they can put somebody who represents them in their interests. And in doing this, you can see a unity take place between the two as equals in a political struggle against a common enemy. That's the key. Now, from the point of view of being concerned, I would say this. Any black party in putting forth demands for better housing, better schools, better jobs, equal opportunity in training, and, and some sort of compensation for those who are being deprived because of automation or cybernation. Isn't this the problem that's confronting the farmers who are being pushed off their land, the miners throughout the Appalachia area? But they've got to do something about it politically. And the step is being made, being taken now by the black community who are pointing out the road. Follow their example. I'm just going to take a few questions and then we'll get to the summary and the speakers can answer in the summary. I'll remind you that the, uh, that the, for a while we can, uh, well, it's a pretty packed place, but uh, theoretically we can uh, speak and talk after the meeting. And uh, remind you of the uh, meeting, of, of the candidates will, uh, the uh, party for the candidate, excuse me, uh, for the presidential candidate, Clifton DeBerry, tomorrow uh, at this hall, uh, starting at 9 p.m., uh, this gentleman right over here. Yeah, what do you want me to comment? <laughs> I'm asking you a question about it and I'll try and answer it, but comment, that's a long letter. The entire letter. But it says that you had changed your views towards your hard racial lives. Travel broadens one's scope. 
Anytime you do any traveling, your scope will be broadened. It doesn't mean you change, you broaden. No religion will ever make me forget the condition of our people in this country. No religion will ever make me forget the continued biting of dogs against our people in this country. No religion will make me forget the police clubs that come upside our heads. No God or no religion, no nothing, will make me forget it until it's stopped, until it's finished, until it's eliminated. I want to make that point clear. Now, concerning the letter, in, uh, in Mecca, during the, this religious hajj, it would be an anthropologist's paradise because never at any time or any place can you find a wider variety of specimens from the human family together at the same time than on this, than during this pilgrimage. Every type of human being imaginable is there. All colors, all sizes, all everything. As I pointed out in the letter, during the religious ritual, you eat actually with your hands all of the time. I was eating from the same plate with people who in America would be considered white, whose hair was blonde, whose eyes were blue, and whose skin was white. Yes. There were black people, brown people, red people, yellow people, and white people. Every specimen of humanity was represented there. But I noticed, one thing I noticed about these, they didn't act white. <laughs> they didn't act like the white people whom I had always known. In studying it, in any Afro-American who's involved in any kind of experience, the yardstick that he uses to measure it is racism. When you find a black man, a so-called Negro from America, any situation he comes in contact with, He's measuring it from the racist point of view because this is his experience. This is, his, this is the American experience for a black American, so-called black American, or a black so-called American. <laughs> so I was, I was studying the situation, and I was asking myself, well, what is the difference between these people and those whom I just left in America? Something is different. And it was their attitude. It wasn't their color because those were just as white as these. Their eyes were just as blue as these. Their hair was just as blonde as these. Yet they were different. And the difference was not in the color but in the attitude. So I was searching to find an answer as to why. And I thought, thought I did. The fact that they had accepted the oneness of God, as does everyone who's on that pilgrimage, had the chain reaction effect of forcing them also to uh, accept the oneness of the human family. So that by accepting the oneness of God, they regarded all people, all persons, as part of the human family. They didn't uh, uh, judge them by the color of their skin, but the different complex complexions present only represented the different complexions that go to make up the human family. Not one being any better than the other, or one being any different from the other. And this, this was reflected in their attitude. Because they looked upon all of mankind as a brother. They looked upon themselves as being nothing but another brother. They didn't have that air, I am white. White to them didn't mean the same thing that it means in America. 
When a, and when a man in America says he's white, he means something much different from what is meant by that man over there. When this man over here uses the word white, right in the sound of his voice, right in the essence of his being, is something that you and I are able to detect, and I think you'll have to bear me witness. Over there, I didn't find that. So I said to myself, and I wrote it back, that if Islam, if that philosophy can remove from those people who are supposedly white this uh, ingredient of racism that we have always discovered and felt the results of in this society, if it can remove it from that, perhaps if these people over here with the blue eyes and the blonde hair and the white skin and the bad attitude <laughs> can study uh, that philosophy and be affected by it in the same manner, perhaps they too can be saved from the disaster. Welcome back. And uh, that was a rare archival audio file of uh, Malcolm X speaking on a panel in New York City on May 29th, 1964, uh, discussing a myriad of issues, the African-American struggle, uh, the struggle on the African continent, the complementary uh, aspects of the African and African-American struggle, and the, indeed the international situation in general. And, uh, of course, yesterday was the 98th uh, anniversary of the birth of Malcolm X, and we're going to continue in our next episode to honor Malcolm X in light of the upcoming 60th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity, the forerunner of uh, the African Union. That's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today. Uh, you've been listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, May 20th, uh, 2023. And uh, we've been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access uh, to uh, the uh, program, this program, uh, all you need to do is go uh, to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read uh, the Pan-African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Uh, just go uh, to our website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to close out uh, with the music of Cliff, Clifford Brown and Max Roach and their quintet from a concert in the state of California in 1954. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe off and have a beautiful week. Presenting the outstanding exponents of the new jazz, led by Max Roach at the drums. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's my pleasure to introduce you to you at this time, George Bledsoe, our bass violinist. Our pianist, Carl Perkins. Teddy Edwards, our tennis saxophonist. And the great Clifford Brown on trumpet.
First, all God's children got rhythm.
Thank you. Now it's our pleasure to present Clifford Brown playing for you tenderly.
A Teddy Edwards original, Sunset Eyes. Thank mm-hmm. you.